You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science and technology. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Richard Francis, who will be discussing his book, Why Men Won't Ask for Directions. Also, we'll find out how much pressure one atmosphere is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. To Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess I'm me, Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. So an exciting week for science and science fun. Yeah, I was at the recent American Chemical Society meeting in Anaheim. Is there anything more fun than the American Chemical Society meeting? That's the thing everybody looks forward to every year. It's like mixing cocktails, you know. <laughs> cocktails and beer, probably. Cocktails and beer, yeah. yeah. What was brewing, so to speak, up at the American Chemical Society? Big topic is nanotechnology. Nanotechnology. It's been a big topic for uh, a lot quite of small stuff. But now they've shown that it could be dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. Nanotechnology could kill you. <laughs> so for the first time, there's evidence that shows that buckyballs, one of the first objects described by this nanotechnology, can kill fish if it's put into the water. And in the study that was carried out by a research group at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas, they took some bass fish and they exposed it to 0.5 ppm, parts per million, of the uh, water-soluble buckyballs. Mm-hmm. And after 48 hours, these fish developed brain damage. Only 48 hours? Yeah. Do they know how it's accumulating in the fish itself? They still haven't figured out what the mechanism is, but that's their next target studies to figure out how these buckyballs or these carbon isotopes enter your body and start degrading the tissue. So is it is the thought if uh, humans eat these fish then they might also develop these types of problems with their brain? That's one of the fears. Since nanotechnology is still emerging, they're worried that a lot of these nanochemicals, nanomaterials can enter the human system and start causing harm that we weren't aware of before. But that's kind of a low amount, only what, 0.5 parts per million? Which is comparable to like, you know, a lot of metals that we would define as being toxic in our uh-huh. water at that level. Okay. But you know, if you put a Coke into your aquarium and they'll also kill a fish. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've killed most of my fish just by not feeding them, but that's, that's another issue. So I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the website of the American Chemical Society. It's work that was carried out by Oberdorster at Dallas. Alright, well, buckyballs may not be the only things that can mess with your brain. Really? Well, it turns out also fat cells might be able to mess with your brain. Fat cells? Yeah. You mean like, you know, those are Big Macs? Uh, the Big Macs and the Atkins diet or whatever else is popular these days. The uh, low-carb stuff. <laughs> the low-carb. Turns out that fat cells release a hormone called leptin. Leptin? Apparently leptin interacts with the brain to regulate appetite. Okay. So a group of researchers now have begun to investigate this leptin mechanism because, of course, obesity is now a very uh, serious problem in the U.S. It kills almost 400,000 Americans a year. disease. And fat is the cure. (laughs) (laughs) Really? More fat? Actually, fat regulates the amount of leptin that's involved. Okay. So neuroendocrinologist Tomas Horvath of Yale University and Jeffrey Friedman of Rockefeller University have shown that leptin-deficient mice grow five times as fat as normal mice do. So this is saying that if they don't have this amount of leptin, then Mm -hmm. they're unable to regulate the amount that they eat. The leptin actually increased the amount of synapses that block the appetite response, and it also reduces the amount of stimulating neurons that actually stimulate the response. Hmm. And a second study led by Richard Simmerly at Oregon Health and Sciences University found a similar actually during the development of mice. 
if mice were fed a lot of fat, that they actually developed either fewer or more synapses. So it could set the point of what their appetite was for a lifetime. Oh, wow, so this is set when they're growing up or when they're being born, or can this be uh, changed at any time? It looks like, uh, like most things in the brain, that in fact is more pronounced while they're developing growing up, but that it can actually change over time. I see. So it's uh, fascinating stuff, uh, and I guess the next fad diet might be the <laughs> leptin diet or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> if there's any people out there who are interested in finding another way to reduce their weight? Well, besides, uh, again, eating less and exercising more, which I think everyone's <laughs> been saying for years, <laughs> uh, this was published in the recent edition of Science Now. Alright, so have you been uh, infected with the West Nile virus yet? It's on my list of things to do, but <laughs> haven't gotten around to it. I'm in case you're wondering, it's just going to feel like a flu. But uh, I thought it kills, though. I thought it was a particularly virulent form of the flu. <laughs> That's also true. But it turns out we may have to be a little bit cautious this coming year. Apparently, the West Nile virus has already um, reached California. There were three reported cases last summer in L.A., and scientists at Davis believe that by the summer, there's going to be an outbreak in Southern California, and by the end of the fall, it'll probably reach Northern California. But I thought the flies that carry this disease actually used to live in a certain type of climate. That California is almost perfect. Is uh, that right? It has this irrigation culture with our farmlands, right? And right. that makes it easy for uh, mosquitoes to propagate. And this virus basically spreads between birds and humans. And with all these factors, it turns out the transmission is going to be very feasible in this climate. What do we have to do then to look out for the West Nile virus? So California, fortunately, has pretty good mosquito control. The best way to minimize this is to have rigorous surveillance, testing of groups with mosquitoes every week or so, examining, you know, birds and other farm animals that might be infected. Look for the cows that are uh, <laughs> sniffling a little, I guess. Is I guess so. Stuff that we should probably be aware of since it, it will hit California right. soon. So more things to look out for. So, so far we've found out that buckyballs can kill <laughs> and uh, West Nile virus is on the loose. So, this was work carried out by Professor John Edmond at the University of California at Davis, and you can check out his website. All right, well, to round out the uh, death theme that we have going here with the <laughs> buckyballs and the uh, West Nile virus. I feel happy. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that also being in a group can kill you. Being in a group? Yes, a quorum, so to speak. You mean lemmings? <laughs> Heading for the sea. <laughs> It actually turns out that if you're a bacteria and you have certain types of engineered genes, being in a large group might be uh, not so good because it could kill you. Is it because they're competing for resources? Uh, an interesting thing because they've actually been engineered to kill themselves off once they reach a certain size. Interesting. So uh, researchers have been inter interested in this for a long time because they want to use bacteria to produce all drugs or... Bioweapons. Bioweapons. <laughs> you name it. Uh, <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> so one of the issues, of course, is how do you control these populations and make sure they don't get out of hand? Mm -hmm. And so a group of researchers at uh, the California Institute of Technology, led by uh, Ling Chun Yu and Francis Arnold, have engineered a natural signaling pathway in a bacteria called Vibrio fischeri. Mm -hmm. And this signaling pathway normally, when all, a lot of bacteria get together, it actually signals for the bacteria to glow in an organism. Oh, glow in a dark bacteria. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're actually in the sort of light organ of a squid, right? Okay. So when they get in there, they just start glowing, and it actually is a symbiotic relationship. Right. Kind of cool. But what they did is instead they replaced the glowing element with a death element, so to speak, huh. so that now when all these bacteria get together, they don't glow. They, in fact, release a chemical that causes them all to die. Oh, jeez. <laughs> they think it's actually quite fascinating because it could actually enable them to, um, you know, regulate the size of bacterial populations that they're using for certain types of engineering. I wonder if this is how our cult religions kill themselves off. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Jones would be interested in this. Uh, the Heaven's Gate folk. Uh, David Koresh. You, you name it, a quorum can kill. Yeah. <laughs>
fascinating results, and it was published in the uh, April 4th edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, we'll be joined by Dr. Richard Francis, who will discuss his book, Why Men Won't Ask for Directions. So, stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the success of the evolutionary theory to explain adaptation of organisms by selection remains a cornerstone of biology. So successful has this approach been that it has even been extended to explain the selective advantage of many behaviors. This field of sociobiology has experienced enormous interest within the past few decades, but it may be an inquiry within limitations. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss these issues of sociobiology is Dr. Richard Francis. Dr. Francis received his Ph.D. in Neurobiology and Behavior from Stony Brook University and was a recipient of the National Research Science Award from NIH. He was a postdoctoral fellow here in the Bay Area at both Stanford and UC Berkeley, and he's the author of the new book, Why Men Won't Ask for Directions, The Seductions of Sociobiology. Dr. Francis, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. My pleasure. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've written a very fascinating book, Why Men Won't Ask for Directions, The Seductions of Sociobiology. So maybe you can explain a little bit about what is sociobiology. Sociobiology is an attempt to extend the evolutionary approach developed by Darwin to social behavior in animals and humans, which is fine. Unfortunately, they have a very narrow conception of what an evolutionary explanation is. In particular, they focus almost exclusively on natural selection. They're often referred to as adaptationists. So much of this book is a critique of adaptationism in general, in sociobiology, and evolutionary psychology in particular. I see. So it's trying to extend the evolutionary theory to psychology and behavior in some way. Yes, which is, again, is fine as long as it's not done in a simplistic and distorted way, which is what I think sociobiology does. I see, I see. So you can give some examples of the types of questions that sociobiology has been trying to address that may not be necessarily within its purview. <laughs> well, uh, one of the more topical ones recently concerns rape. There's been a, a book by Randy Thornhill and Palmer which proposes an 
an ad- adaptive explanation of rape in uh-huh. humans, which is not very compelling. And well, basically, their explanation is that rape is an adaptive strategy for people of s- low socioeconomic backgrounds mm-hmm. who can't find mates in the more traditional way. Uh-huh. The data for it is weak. It's basically a, what Gould has referred to as a just-so story. But it's one with potentially adverse consequences. Well, I don't think evolutionary biology <laughs> has much to contribute to that. I think it's an issue for the social sciences, and I just think that a little humility is appropriate here from evolutionary biology. I see. You talk a lot in your book about a lot of these issues of sexual theories. In particular, why are they even sexes at all? Well, I, I do have a chapter on why we have sexual reproduction right. as opposed to asexual reproduction. Mm -hmm. And there I explore the adaptationist explanations for why there's so much sex when there's good evolutionary reasons why you wouldn't expect it. And in particular, you wouldn't expect so much sex amongst vertebrates Mm. where it's almost ubiquitous. So this is the case where I introduced the how biology as a way to understand the distribution of, of sexual behavior. And basically, there are constraints on vertebrates that even if it were adaptive for them to go back to an asexual mode of reproduction, it's, it's impossible to get there from yes. here. So once we've traveled down the road, we have... Yes. So a lot of the book is a critique between the why approaches to biology and the how approaches to biology. Maybe you can elaborate on that. Yeah, that's important. Ernst Meyer is a very famous evolutionary biologist, developed this dichotomy for biology between what he called how biology and why biology. Why biology was a purview of evolutionary biologists. How biology was everything else, Mm. genetics, development, physiology, whatever. And then he developed a sort of two-tiered approach to uh, biological explanation. The how biology supplied the proximate explanation, Mm. whereas the why biology supplied the ultimate explanation, a term which is problematic in and of itself. Mm. He also uh, asserted that you could do the why biology without any how biology considerations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's become problematic in a lot of sociobiology. If they had a better why biology grounding, there would be more tethered than they are now. So it's trying to search for an explanation without actually looking for mechanisms. Right. It's a mechanismless search. In fact, it's basically a teleological approach, Mm -hmm. which ironically they inherited from creationists like uh, William Paley uh, and natural theology in general. Why is it that these types of questions, approaches, are so seductive? Well, teleology is, we're all born natural teleologists. We mm-hmm. want to explain nature in terms of some way analogous to the actions of an agent, mm-hmm. analogous to ourselves. And it also has great heuristic value mm-hmm. in certain settings. The problem is it, it has this, what I refer to as this kudzu-like property. I refer to that southeastern mm-hmm. scourge that takes over everything. Right. And so it takes over your mental landscape to the point that you can't consider alternative perspectives. So as a heuristic, teleology is fine, but when it becomes taken as a, a literalist approach, it becomes problematic. I see. In, in current biology, then, we've sort of replaced a God explanation with nature explanation. Ex- exactly. D- Daniel Dennett, is case in point, he's basically replaced a designing God with mm-hmm. a designing Mother Nature. Now, it's, it's over time. Mm-hmm. I call it designed on the installment plan. <laughs> but it's nevertheless, this intuition is common to both Paley and Dennett that nature reflects some design process, and that's what I reject. So what do you think are some of the more uh, egregious examples of this in sociobiology? 
One of the uh, chapters I devote with special reference to evolutionary psychology uh-huh. is this alleged sex differences in spatial cognition. And actually, that's sort of what the title refers to. And let me give you their explanation first. It goes back to the, some Pleistocene conditions in which men were out hunting, women were home gathering. Mm. The men, because they ranged for further, had to develop some sort of innate Euclidean sense or uh-huh. navigational skill, which the women didn't require. And then the evolutionary psychologists that have added a new twist, which is that the better navigators were also more sexually attractive to their mates. Okay. And so, in essence, to ask for directions is to, like, take off your shirt and reveal a sunken chest, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, it will turn off the females. But anyway, the, the problems with this, beyond its sort of surface silliness, mm-hmm. are three. One is, most basically, the data isn't very good, that there is a robust sex difference in spatial cognition in males and females. Mm-hmm. Throughout history, there's been a number of tests. In fact, every test on spatial cognition that has ever been devised has initially shown a sex difference. And then every one of those results has eventually been debunked, mm. with one exception, and, and that is the most recent test, which is three-dimensional mental rotations. Mm. So if, even if we accept that there is a sex difference in three-dimensional mental rotations, mm-hmm. then there's a problem of what is its cause. Now, the evolutionary psychologists assume that it's biological, mm-hmm. that hormones are involved. Mm. Testosterone makes males better spatial navigators. But the evidence for that is extremely weak. I, I detail in this book. In fact, I spent much of the time in writing this book having to read that kind of literature. Whereas there's ample evidence that social cultural factors play an enormous role mm. in this. And also the spatial cognition story extends to sex differences in mathematics. For example, the sex differences are most pronounced in the United States, even in the Western world. Mm. And some cross-cultural studies, uh, they've shown that in African Americans and in Hispanics, that the females are superior in mathematics, and in Asian Americans, it's been found that the sex difference is is quite small. Hmm. And then there's evidence that these sex differences are disappearing, I Hmm. mean, over time, which is what you'd expect given the new educational opportunities available to females. Mm -hmm. And this does not accord well with sort of a biological Hmm. explanation, much less an evolutionary explanation. Hmm. And then finally, just from a purely evolutionary perspective, it makes no adaptive sense, Mm -hmm. because if, in fact, males were selected for this extra spatial cognition and females weren't, we'd still expect both their male and female children to have this enhanced cognition unless there's a disadvantage Mm -hmm. for enhanced spatial cognition in females, which there's no reason to believe there is. So traits in which there is an advantage to one sex and not the other Mm -hmm. are called sexually antagonistic. Mm -hmm. So these evolutionary psychologists have to prove that spatial cognition is a sexually antagonistic trait. Now, a good example of a sexually antagonistic trait is a penis. It's a good thing for males to have, not a good thing for a female to have. Now, nipples, on the other hand, are not sexually antagonistic. So, selection for nipples in females has resulted in a correlated response in males. Mm-hmm. I suggest that the same would be the case with spatial cognition. I see. There's no real reason for women to actually not have a spatial no. sense. No. What's the downside? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> How then should biologists be approaching these types of questions? Well, certainly for evolutionary biologists, well, basically, when it comes to social behavior, especially in humans, like I indicated before, they should approach it with some humility. Mm -hmm. And right now, evolutionary psychology is very dismissive of the social sciences. Mm -hmm. I say there's no reason to be dismissive of the social sciences. There should not be this antagonism. With respect to biology in particular, Mm -hmm. there has to be an increased emphasis on mechanisms to ameliorate the teleological tendencies of this Y-biology approach.
I guess we are running a little bit out of time, but I'm curious, how did you become interested in this uh, whole issue of sociobiology and uh, its limitations? Oh, I, well, it's from the time I was in graduate school. I was disenchanted with the sort of explanatory style, and my interest in particular in sex differences and, and sexual phenomena, is, that's basically what my research has been throughout the years. So oh. I sort of combine those two here. I see. Maybe as a even final note, in what field do you feel that uh, the greatest advantages will be in, in terms of trying to understand behavior? Well, I think biology certainly will make a big uh -huh. contribution. Uh, neurobiology will, will make a contribution. Okay. Evolutionary biology, rightly construed, mm -hmm. will make a contribution. I, I, one of the problems with evolutionary psychology, I think, is going to discredit any evolutionary approach mm -hmm. because it's so obviously defective. And the social sciences are obviously going to play an important role. Anthropology, sociology, psychology. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a combination of all of these in in the right amount. Exactly. <laughs> not, there's not going to be any simplistic explanation for mm -hmm. complex human behavior. Indeed, indeed. Well, I think we are definitely a little out of time, but Dr. Francis, I just want to thank you very much for joining us on the program in a very fascinating discussion. Well, thank you. You were just listening to Dr. Richard Francis discussing his book, Why Men Won't Ask for Directions, The Seductions of Sociobiology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out why are piranhas so ferocious. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why piranhas are so ferocious? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder why piranhas are such fierce fish? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Piranhas are freshwater fish that call South America home. Their voracious appetite and vicious demeanor are legendary, although their diet rarely includes people. Piranhas are more partial to fish and amphibians. Let's dive right into this topic, if we dare, and take a closer look. Hey, I see several piranhas over there, and since it's daylight, they're at their most active. Even from this safe distance, we can see that their bodies are about a foot long, and they're red, which is not only the most common color for piranhas, it's also the color of danger. How appropriate. Check out the jaws. They're chock full of razor-sharp pearly whites. And since piranhas are born hunters, we'll probably see some action soon. Shh, here comes a poor unsuspecting victim. But suddenly, the piranhas are nowhere to be seen. That's because they often hide in surrounding cover to ambush their prey. Oh, I can't watch. Tell me when it's over. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't pretty. But as you can see, a piranha's number one job is to hunt, and they're good at it. 
Matter of fact, if dry conditions cause this water to start evaporating and they get a little cramped, they're likely to attack anything and everything in the water, including people. Say, is this water drying up? Let's get out of here. Thanks for sinking your teeth into today's show and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Oh, Everyday Science Lady, not even ferocious piranhas can attack your incredible science knowledge. And now we are fortunate to have Jedi Master Yoda to give us the answer to last week's question of the week. Yoda? <clears throat> now Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. It surrounds us. It finds us. It is our air. One atmosphere. But what exactly is one atmosphere? Mm. Sea level. One atmosphere is 14.7 pounds per square inch, or 720 millimeters of mercury. If you go higher, the pressure will less and less. Mount Everest, the pressure is a lot less. Mm. Weak the forces up there. Hey, hey, hey! It's Mr. Crazy with this week's question of the week! It's question of the week! Hey, you want the question of the week? I'm gonna give you the question of the week! The question of the week is light! A particle or a wave! Particle or a wave! Particle or a wave! If you know the answer, email us at grox at grox at grox at hotmail.com! You won't win anything, but you might just be faster than light! And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>